You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, advocates, and today, artists, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. As an ocean lover, I'm always inspired by things that remind me about my love for the sea. As land dwellers, we rely on a diverse suite of arts to help us learn about the ocean, whether it be film, food, visual arts, writing, cartoon, music, dance, and more. So today is dedicated to the arts, and we'll be talking with a few artists whose work communicates something about the ocean. We'll be talking with Jim Toomey, creator of cartoon strip Sherman's Lagoon. We'll be talking with Larry Graff, also known as Airy Larry from the Banana Slug String Band. Cleo Vallette, another visual artist located in the East Bay of California and Oakland. And Jody Lomask, the artistic director for a dance group, Capacitor. So stick with me during the hour to hear from all of them, and we will dive into the arts and the ocean. So first up on today's show, I have Jim Toomey, and Jim is a cartoonist well-known for his comic strip Sherman's Lagoon, which features Sherman, a talking shark, and a supporting cast of animals. Sherman's Lagoon combines two of Jim's lifelong passions, art and the sea, and he is active in marine conservation and has received the Environmental Hero Award by NOAA twice. So I'm thrilled to welcome Jim to Ocean Currents. Jim, you're live on the air with me. Hi, Jennifer. Which came first, art or your love for the ocean? Probably arts. I was uh, I was a, a quote unquote artist probably since the day I was able to hold a crayon. Back when I was uh, two or three years old, I remember vividly uh, decorating the, the the room, the walls of my uh, bedroom. And so, how did you come to the ocean yourself? Um, well, yeah, I think it started with. Um, the annual family trips to the ocean. Back when I was a kid, there were not that many um, ocean documentaries. It was Jacques Cousteau sort of ruled the roost, but beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot else, unlike today when it's kind of 24-7 um, animal animal features on uh, in Discovery and elsewhere. So uh, for me, it was really the, the weekly or the, the annual trips to uh, the shore, and I grew up in the mid-Atlantic, so we ended up going to uh, the Jersey Shore and the Delaware Shore a lot, where uh, I have a chance to just swim and look in the ocean and ponder and, you know, uh, walk along the beach and see uh, people catching fish and go on the pier. And I remember vividly um, one summer, I was probably eight or nine, uh, when um, a a fisherman hauled in a a good-sized shark. It was probably a five- or six-footer, and that really made an impression on me. I can still see that shark vividly. He let me touch it. And uh, um, that was uh, just quite an experience for a nine-year-old boy. So I imagine that, of course, had an impression on you. How did Sherman's Lagoon come to be as the strip that is now syndicated across the country and has 
started on a whole new adventure. Sure. I was a little bit older. I was probably 12 when um, I went on another family trip, this time a little bit more uh, glamorous. We went to the Bahamas. My dad was a was a pilot um, in the Navy, and he was retired, but we still flew this little rinky-dink um, private plane around every now and then. And uh, we flew down there in our little six-seater, um, flying very low over the islands. And uh, that's that's the trip that really changed my mind about the ocean, because the, with the family trips to the shore, you really just stood on the beach and you saw the this blue-gray surface, and you kind of a, tried to imagine what was going on under there, but you didn't have a big picture of that. Um, when you're flying over the Bahamas, it's like... Uh, it's like it's like flying over landscape, um, a liquid landscape. The uh, the water's so clear, as you as you know. And uh, if you've uh, ever been over the islands or seen aerial photos, um, it really is an amazing experience. And it was on that trip that um, I saw we flew over a lagoon at maybe 500 feet, and I did see a shark. I saw sharks and manta rays and sea turtles. I could see all that from such a low altitude, but I do vividly remember seeing the. The Shark in the Lagoon, and that was the birth of Sherman's Lagoon. Wow. One of the things that I always wonder about for cartoonists like yourself is when you see different ocean animals, whether you're snorkeling or diving or maybe at an aquarium, does your mind start thinking about the cartoon and characters <laughs> and <laughs> talking yeah. and a little scene? And sure. Is that what it's like for you? Yeah, you know, and it's so easy with uh, ocean animals. Um I think so, anyway. I, I think some people maybe find it hard to put, you know, to anthropomorphize them, to put a $50 word on it. But when I go into uh, an aquarium, I, I just love the variety, the size, the the different um, kinds of animals, be it, you know, crustaceans or fish or um, jellyfish or, or, you know, the marine mammals. They all have a a, a different personality that really you can you can really have a lot of fun with as an artist. I know. I imagine. What is your favorite animal to characterize? <laughs> well, of course, it's the shark. I love. I love sharks. Um, I've always had that fascination with them since I was a little boy. And uh, you know what I like about them is that they're a little bit like um, Frankenstein's monster. You know, they're a little misunderstood from uh, when you when you uh, I guess uh, consider their you know their reputation. Um, they, you know, a lot of that's undeserved. And as animals, I've dived with lots of sharks. And uh, sometimes they're, you know, they're chickens. They're scaredy cats. They don't want to get near you. And uh, sometimes they're curious. Um, but I think what I think what strikes me the most when I dive with sharks is that, the, you know, the one stereotype that continually gets shattered is the, the idea that they're kind of dumb and... Uh, when I get close to him, and I was close to one just three weeks ago, and um, diving off of North Carolina was just a couple of feet, looking eye to eye to a sand tiger, and uh, they are. There's a lot of intelligence in those eyes, and they look back, and they 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 kind of you know, you can tell it's more than just a a a sort of glassy-eyed fish look. It's they they get it. It's like looking in the eye of a of a lion or a, a dog or something. It's it's really, there's a lot of intelligence there. That's really neat to have that. I've heard people describe that, seeing marine mammals underwater as well. Yep. So did you, when you started out with Sherman's Lagoon, did you know that you would be such an ambassador for the ocean through your art? And how has the conservation ethic really taken through with your strip over the years? 
Oh, no. Uh, that's been a wild ride for me, just um, just getting into the whole con- ocean conservation thing. Um, I guess, you know, uh, I was... I was taking a kind of a conservation approach to the the cartoon um, from the very beginning. And, you know, my love for the ocean, I think, was was a little bit different than most people's. Um, So there was, I think I was probably more of an ocean ocean conservationist from the beginning than than your average bear. Um, But I really got into it. I think I I became fascinated with using the comic strip as an an outreach tool, I, when I first was contacted by NOAA of uh, of all organizations, and uh, they it was about mm, twelve, thirteen, fourteen years ago, and uh, they really wanted to um, uh, collaborate with me on on a couple of outreach pieces for for kids, and uh, I was really honored. I mean, I was you know get a phone call from somebody high up in NOAA, and they want to have a meeting, and so I went in and. Um, and uh, I was amazed. I mean, they were really excited about working with me. And uh, at that point, I was just really, really excited about working with them. And then and the, the uh, horizon expanded to other organizations, nonprofits, and so forth. And and I began to realize that, um, you know, you can you can have an entertaining product and be a little bit more informative. And I became fascinated with the, I guess, the prospect of putting a higher purpose on the comic strip of making it a little bit more than just kind of a gag a day that uh, most comic strips are. So I try to kind of strike a fine line between staying entertaining and um, not all the time, not even half the time, but, um, you know, often enough, put, put a little message in there or, or even just put a little ocean fact in there. Take them, take the characters to a strange place like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge or the Marianas Trench or put a strange creature in there um, so that you're maybe you don't necessarily take a conservation position, but um, you're educating people a little bit more about the ocean. Absolutely. Just one little picture is, can speak millions about a habitat or yeah. mystery or so much more to explore. Exactly. That's what I love about it. We just have a, another two minutes here left. This is yeah. such a quick show today. Everything's going to be quick. But um, what has been one of the most fascinating ocean facts that you've illustrated in Sherman's Lagoon, in your opinion? Oh, um, let's see. Well, uh, the I, I really I've done a recurring storyline on the census of marine life, um, and that's a real project, as you probably know. Um, it's been going on for about ten years, and they've uh, uncovered all kinds of new crazy critters. Um, you know, like the Yeti crab and the Dumbo octopus and the vampire squid. So um, I keep going back to that storyline because it's so much fun to to go to different parts of the world and then just follow that census of marine life project and, and uh, you know, feature some of these new characters in, in the strip. So um, that's probably, that's been my favorite um, go-to storyline for the last couple of years. Well, is there a place on the web that folks can keep up on your work and your latest projects? I understand Sherman's Lagoon also became a musical at some point. <laughs> yeah, it did. I can't savor the irony. I can't. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. But I've met a couple of really talented people who uh, have actually. This has already been a high school musical a couple of years ago, and we're going to take it to a stage in San Francisco this summer. So that's really exciting for me. It's something very different. Great. We'll definitely keep posting on that to let our listeners know. How about um, a website for keeping up on your work? Well, um, the the place to look at the comic strip every day is just shermanslagoon.com. Um, and I'm I'm not as good as I should be about keeping up with the blog there. But uh, there's also the Facebook page, which is easy enough to find as well. Okay, great. 
Awesome, Jim. Well, thank you so much for calling in for a few minutes to talk about your cartoon. It's a great, great strip, and I love all your books, and I look forward to seeing the musical next summer. Thanks a lot, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We've just been talking with Jim Toomey, who is the cartoonist and creator of Sherman's Lagoon, a cartoon that is syndicated in the United States and many, many newspapers. He's got several books out and all focusing on a shark and his character, family of friends that are in the habitat. Really fun to check out. So check out Sherman'sLagoon.com if you haven't seen Sherman's Lagoon yet and see what Jim is up to and we'll keep posted. We're going to actually take a turn now towards music in just a few moments. For those of you tuning in just now, this is Ocean Currents, and today is talking about the ocean and the arts, and we're talking with a couple different artists that are communicators about the ocean through their work and have typically an educational component to it. So next we'll be talking with Larry Graff from the Banana Slug String Band. Waiting for him to call in. We'll listen to some music from the Banana Slug String Band while we wait. Down, 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 underneath the sea Though the treasure's to be found Pirate life is not for me Going down, down, down We will see what we can see We will know where to go to But then merge Going down, down, down Where we've never been before Now come and walk with me Along the ocean floor So now sounding down Into the depths Echo location Then we take a few more steps So now sounding down Into the depths Echo location Then we take a few more steps Hard to turn that music down. I love it. It's got a great groove. That's the Banana Slug String Band. You're listening to Going Down, Down, Down. And it's a song about bathymetry, which I found interesting for Jim Toomey. He mentioned that was one of the big things that really hit him was in the creation of Sherman's Lagoon was seeing the seafloor coming in from an airplane and just seeing the atoll. So really fascinating. And I have Larry Graff on the phone with me from the Santa Cruz area, one of the uh, folks in the Banana Slung String Band on vocals and guitar, and they recently released an album, well, actually two years ago now, Only One Ocean, and it focuses all on the ocean. So, Larry, welcome. You're live on the air. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, thanks for uh, putting out the great message about our oceans. It's a great, great CD. I'm having such a great time listening to it. I know it's been out for two years, but it's just fa- awesome that every single song is really so educational. You guys have been around for about 25 years now, and what brought you all to do an album on the ocean? Well, we um, were at the National Marine Educators Association a few years ago in Maui, and uh, talking with our friend, friend Craig Strang, who's the director of Lawrence Hall of Science, and uh, he thought this was a great idea to do something that fit with the um, the new standards that would be the ocean literacy standards. So uh, with Craig's help and uh, some other people, we uh, focused on the standards and writing songs to fit uh, the ocean literacy curriculum. So when you are writing or other band members are writing, um, are there any aha moments in terms of learning about ocean facts and are any specific ones that you guys really wanted to write about or sing well, about? I mean, that song you were just playing, Going Down, 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 every time I hear it, I learn something new. <laughs> <laughs> Solar Steve wrote that song, and, you know, it's there's so much content in it. Um, you'd have to, you know, listen to it many times to uh, get all the uh, 
the amazing factual content in this song, which I'm still learning. You know, when I read, I'm reading the words right now as I'm talking to you, and it's fantastic. Steve did a great job writing this song. Well, what's really fun about it, I love, is that it's kind of a sciencey topic, bathymetry, and most people can't even say the word, and, you know, just all about the contours of the seafloor, and it makes it super fun. And I think when the fun is matched with science, it sticks, which I get is probably your goal. Yeah, that's what we uh, try to do, make learning fun and funny. And even if it's a serious topic, we try to kind of hit it on the light side so kids uh, will be open to learning and not get, you know, down or depressed. Like on this album, we also have a song called Too Hot about global warming. But it's, it's kind of upbeat and kind of funny, and but also serious. It really gets the message out, too. Yeah, I imagine that must be a little weird to be dancing and bouncing around to topics that are pretty challenging overall. But do you see kids getting some of the concepts from the songs, even when they're pretty tough? Yeah, I think, well, I think that it, we don't hear right, but we get comments from teachers and parents saying that their kids are, you know, chanting these words later on after they hear it. So it must be sinking in. We we see in concerts just kids having fun, and, you know, we call them on stage, and we have them sing Get to Know Your Watershed, so they're learning the word, and then they're learning what, what a watershed is, so they're they're using many of their senses and, and kinetic, you know, energy to learn, learn some of the stuff we're trying to teach. Absolutely. Now, I noticed that you guys have costumes for all your albums. Do you wear those on stage? Yeah, we have uh, characters come out for different songs, and they're different costumes for each char- for each song. So let's say when we do uh, Kingdom of the Crab, a song about crabs, a giant crab comes out, and he sings it. Or if we have a song, uh, The Water Cycle Boogie, we'll have Doug the Drop come out. He's, drop- he's dressed up in a giant, like a raindrop, looks like a, kind of like a raindrop, giant psychedelic raindrop. Or when we sing about uh, turtle jelly, plastics, and trying to keep plastics, use less plastics and keep them out of the ocean, a turtle comes out and it talks and it's part of the song. Yeah, so it's just another way to connect with our audience uh, by making it interesting and uh, fun. Super fun. To get the message out. Do you play anywhere locally in the Bay Area or is it sort of um, event-based and do you come up here at all? In the Bay Area, we've played, we played, we played in over forty states. Oh wow! So we tour um, all year round. Um, our main uh, bread and butter in the school years, Doug and I, Doug Dirt and Ari Larry, go to schools in the Bay Area, and so we perform all over the state and a lot in the Bay Area. Um, and then the big band travels wherever events or people call us or there's festivals or libraries, zoos, aquariums, any kind of event like that. Yeah, so we've played almost everywhere. Fantastic. If you a city in California, we've probably played it. <laughs> well, and, it... and other states, too. And uh, go to a yearly trip to Ohio. Mm-hmm. We do a yearly trip to Hawaii. We've been playing New Mexico a lot and Oregon a lot. And, you know, it's all over, whoever... Whoever needs some banana slug energy to teach about the earth, we we usually go. 
I understand we have a similar background in that the actually the origins of the banana slug string band came from working at an environmental education facility. Is that how the band came to be, and how did it yeah, go? We all were we were all teaching at um, San Mateo County Outdoor Education, which is in La Honda, California, mm-hmm. the Redwoods. We were all teaching in that area. There's a few outdoor ed programs right in La Honda area, and this is the early '80s. And then we met and we started playing music and sharing our songs about nature. And and then, uh, yeah, then it kind of decided, let's take this on the road a little bit and see what happens. And twenty, we've been together 28 years now. So uh, it's pretty successful, I mean, on a, for a, what we're trying to do. Can't, you know, really appreciate what we get to do. And it's a pretty neat job to have, being a banana slug. That's great. I love it. Well, and the music's really, really fun. I have a, a toddler at home, and he bounces around to it, but I'm looking forward to when the lyrics really stick with him. It'll be great. Yeah, yeah. So before we close out here, um, what what website would you recommend folks to be able to find your CDs, purchase your CDs, and see where and when you might be performing? Well, you can go to our website, banana slug stringband.com You can get a lot of information and download songs. You can find out where we're playing in the next few months. You can uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, you can get our music on iTunes and other downloadable sites. Um, so I guess that's the best way to get a hold of us. Our webpage, com, Facebook, iTunes. Uh, give us a call. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we'd love to uh, perform wherever uh, wherever we're needed. You know, school shows, uh, family concerts, do teacher workshops. We play we play the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, this this Saturday and Sunday. We have a big grant with San Mateo County, so we get to go to every city in San Mateo County and do concerts for uh, watershed education. At 25 schools in San Mateo County. Oh, that's so great. Such important work. That's awesome. What song on the CD would you like us to close out with while we say goodbye? How about Too Hot? Too Hot. All right. Well, Larry, awesome to meet you on the phone. Thank you for calling in and sharing the CD, and thank you for making it. This is an awesome CD, Only One Ocean, covering all the principles and concepts about the ocean that we want everyone to know about. And thank so, yeah, thank you so much, Jennifer, for uh, putting this important message out and uh, talking to me. And I think people will uh, like what they hear when they hear the Banana Slick String Band. We're really fun. And uh, when you hear us, people love us. And it's really great to share with the uh, audience out there. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Larry. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Way up north in the Arctic land. Problems are brewing for the polar bear. Life on the ice is not so great. Polar bears are losing their real estate. Too hot, a little more each day. Too hot, melts away. Too hot, would you be cool if not? The ocean is the reason for the life we got. The ocean is the reason for the life we got. Now in the tropics, life's not always okay. Some coral reefs have lost their floral bouquet. The algae friend can't live in the heat, so the coral can't get what it needs to eat. Too hot, no fish in sight. Too hot, when the reef is too dry. Too hot, why can't be cool as that?
Banana Slug String Band singing Too Hot, a song about climate change. It's got a good beat to it. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Bolinas and live on the web at www.kwmr.org. And you're tuned to Ocean Currents here, and we are today talking about the ocean and the arts. And I'm thrilled to have another artist on the phone, and I'll have full disclosure, Cleo is a friend of mine as well. And Cleo is a visual artist. She's a degree, she has a degree in marine biology and an advanced training at certificate in scientific illustration. And she is a muralist, illustrator, exhibit fabricator, including detailed model making, and has a strong focus in ocean habitats through her work. She's worked at the American Museum of Natural History in the renovation of the Hall of Ocean Life, and most recently she's with the Oakland Museum of California, where she's recently worked on the brand new permanent exhibit on none other than Cordell Banks. So, Cleo, welcome. You're live on the air. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I asked this to Jim Toomey earlier, and I always am curious from the artist's perspective, was it marine science first or art first for you that brought you into your career? I think um, I think it was probably marine science, and uh, it's it made me start paying attention to, in school in high school when we started to get into biology. And um, I I think I had a side interest in art all along, but not a very serious one until after my after I already had my degree in marine biology. One of the things that I, I was just thinking about talking to some of the other folks and researching is your work is very much a kind of a behind the scenes type of work in terms of art. And the results of your work really have a really long lasting impact with education and awareness. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how you like combine the aesthetics of what you do, but also with the long term impact of people seeing your work? Sure. Um, actually, that's that's one of the driving forces behind it for me has always been, can I create art that has a purpose? And um, with my background in marine science education, that was a very clear purpose for me to pursue. Um, so naturally, I went for a scientific illustration as a possible career path because it combined those two things, usually for some kind of educational outcome. And from that, I also branched out into three-dimensional work in fabricating models for uh, museum exhibits that focus on on marine life. That part I find so intriguing because your background is so much in the skill of illustrating some of these things. And then how do you transfer that skill into physically modeling something with different materials? And it's so much more three-dimensional and tactile. How do you transfer those skills? Well, I think what probably the most important skill to have is an interest or a passion in keeping or making something as accurate as you can. So right off the bat, having that background in marine science and having a knowledge about how things are made from the inside out, that's, that's important in illustration as well as model making. And I was lucky to get hired at the American Museum of Natural History when I did, because they were working on the Hall of Ocean Life, and they were looking for people that had a background in both art and marine science. That was ideal. Um, So I actually, I would say, got trained in a lot of the materials and a lot of the processes for making models there, when I had really, the strongest background that I had was in two-dimensional illustration. That's really cool. Yeah, it was. was. (laughs) And they have, you know, there and also here at the Oakland Museum of California, you know, we have like piles of all these different kinds of materials and you just start to get to know them. And then it's problem solving. Like what's the quickest, fastest, most 
um, cleanest way that I can make this? How many do I need? How many, how far away is it going to be from the viewer? And you kind of put all those things into an equation and, and hope for the best. <laughs> That's well, you're really good at it. I just got a chance to see the most recent model that you made again, and I still am always blown away by it. But can you tell listeners a little bit more about the Cordell Bank Gallery at the museum, the Oakland Museum of California, and what did you just create? Well, we created a um, a life, sort of a slice of the reef, of the Cordell Bank Reef. And um, it's about four feet across by maybe seven or eight feet high. And it allows the public to look up close at the rock surface and what kinds of things you might find there if you could go there. And uh, for me, one of the most amazing parts of this project was to be able to create something for an exhibit that has never been exhibited before. And in terms of natural science exhibits, that's pretty rare these days. Uh, most, most places that we've discovered have been shown somewhere, somehow. Um, and this was the first time that Cordell got spotlighted in an exhibit. And we see that when, we, when people come through, from, come through the gallery, that they, a lot of them have never heard of this place. And so we, we know we're successful because we're bringing attention to this place that's right off our coast. And um, people are learning all about it. And they're able to look at it in a way that they would never really be able to do because most people can't go scuba diving there. Um, and there's, no, there's none of it sticking out of the water. <laughs> so um, it is, it's unique in so many ways. And it was a pleasure to, to be able to be part of that project. That's so fun. What are some of the audience reactions? I remember being there once and hearing someone say they just didn't believe it existed. <laughs> Here. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, it can't. That can't be real. They must have. They must have made this up. Um, and it is. It is absolutely extraordinary. The colors and the just the the. It it does have a candy quality to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, we worked from very high resolution photos, uh, excellent photos and videos, and uh, most of the species that are found there are found other places. So we were able to look at live specimens. Um, so yeah, it's real. <laughs> That's neat. Well, for Cordell Bank, this is a, you've done a lot of murals, some beautiful murals. And it seems that you've some of the work you've done in the past with murals at the Catalina Island Marine Institute or at the San Simeon Exploration Center. Those are habitats that you've been in yourself physically with snorkeling. And what was it like to do this big, real, immersive piece that you hadn't actually physically been there. Right. Well, again, I mean, we were very lucky to have amazing references um, from the sanctuary. And also because, like, one of the most predominant species on there is the strawberry anemone, and those are found all over California. So I was able to find, uh, look at actual animals, and I was familiar with that particular animal, Um so it's gathering references from anywhere you can, going to the different aquariums so I could see things alive. Um, but but part of that for me was going there in my head and hope, hoping that I could facilitate other people's journeys to the same environment without having to physically go there. Yeah, that's one. I bet that's happening right now. I know there's lots of kids groups going through and really getting a chance to peek in and learn some of the little stories of the, ha- the animal interactions, which is super fun. Is there a habitat or a species in the ocean that you'd really like to illustrate or model in the future? Oh, that's, 
that's an interesting question. I think um, I've thought a lot about the deep sea, different deep sea specimens getting into clear, uh, more clear castings and maybe lights. <laughs> um, that would be that would be a, a fun project to do a deep sea exhibit. I think. How about a website? I know you're also involved with, um, you do your own plein air painting, and you have that kind of on the side in addition to the murals and exhibit work. Is there a website people can go to see some examples of your work? Sure. My Yeah, I have a website for my fine art practice, which does include some of my marine work and also the murals. There's a page on there for um, with some of my samples of some of my marine science educational murals. Um, and my website is uh, CleoVillette.com, C-L-E-O-V like in Victor, I-L-E-T-T.com. Fantastic. And how about the Oakland Museum? What's their website? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I have that one here in case you okay, don't. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> MuseumCA.org. And I know all the information there for visiting the museum is online, and you can check that out. And Cleo, it's been so fun to work with you on that project, and thanks so much for your work. I find that people like you and just have this incredible sense of a be- being able to help other people see what most of us can't in such a really accurate way. It's such a fine skill. So thanks oh, so much thank for your you. work. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today on the show. My pleasure. Okay. We'll talk thank to you, you soon. Bye. Bye. We're just talking with Cleo Vallette, a visual artist in Oakland, and she's a multifaceted, talented person, murals, does exhibit fabrication with detailed modeling, and also an excellent painter. And you can see her work online, her own personal website, Cleo Vallette, V-I-L-E-T-T, um, but also the work at the museum, the Oakland Museum of California, where she's working right now and has done this museum, this exhibit installation on Cordell Bank at museumca.org. For this last segment, I have an interview that I did with artistic director Jody Lomask of Capacitor. It's a dance cirque group in San Francisco. And there's a new show that is out called Oceanus, and it's all about the ocean. And I am really excited to go see this show sometime this fall. But she was really wonderful talking with her and hearing about their process of how they're interpreting the ocean through dance. Jody Lomask, the artistic director and founder of Capacitor. And I'm thrilled to be out here on a beautiful sunny afternoon in Sausalito right on the waterfront, which is so appropriate for our conversation. Jody, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me here. Tell us a little bit about how did Capacitor come to be and, and what is it? Capacitor is a dance cirque performance group that I founded about 15 years ago. I started working with scientists about 10 years ago to create shows that are inspired by the natural world. And basically the idea was simple, that if I wanted a long career as a choreographer-director, I didn't want to create the same show over and over again. So in order to avoid that tendency, I needed to continue to be learning and that the artwork I create is basically a side effect of learning. As I learn new information and learn about the world, 
my mind generates images and concepts and ideas for performance works that we then perform. Tell me a little bit about your background in science or natural history or, or conservation and the environment and how much of that influences all that you do in dance. My formal education is really as an artist, as a performer, dancer, choreographer. But I grew up around a lot of scientists and a lot of visual artists. And these uh, worlds have always influenced my work. Basically, I'm, I follow my curiosity. And I think it's a great place to create from when you're open and interested and learning. It puts your mind in the right space to generate interesting creative ideas. I ended up finding environmentalism by working with scientists who study the natural world. For instance, when I was working on our show Biome with Dr. Nalini Nadkarni, she was the lead scientific advisor t teaching us about the forest and the trees, and she also happens to be a strong advocate for forests and trees. And, Learning what she knew influenced us, and, and we eventually felt like this show really, it would be wonderful if we could help our audiences connect more deeply with the forest and, and care more for the trees. And that pattern continues through our current production, Okeanos. So there's a big process for putting this show together, a lot of research. Tell us about the approach towards that. In 2000, I formalized my process with the scientists, and I began to call the process the Capacitor Lab, and we, would, we meet monthly with scientists and artists over the course of six months. And we have one or two scientists present about their research, about what they are passionate about. And we have somebody from the creative team present about what they're making. And it's also an opportunity for us to try out new ideas and get feedback from uh, these two groups immediately. And we found that every time I create a show, it involves at least 20 artists. So. In order to create a sort of unity of design and connect uh, the costume designer with the set designer, with the choreography, with the performers, if we were all working with the same body of knowledge, the shows would be more cohesive. And I felt that I've I've found that it's been effective for that. Not only does it inspire us to generate unique and fresh ideas, but it binds the creative team. Tell us how you got to this most recent show, Okeanos. What was it that inspired you to focus on the ocean? Sometimes my initial impulse is super vague. I had been working on a show called The Perfect Flower for a while, and I was exploring flower reproduction. And I just felt like I wanted to go deep, and I wanted to go into the water, and I had been at an artist colony and I had met a uh, vocal artist who was singing duets with whales and her story sparked my curiosity and I thought wow how is it that whales can hear each other from from such great distances and then I started to learn more about the ocean I eventually interviewed my father because he had done a, a deep dive in the Bathyscaphe in 1957. Uh, he had gone 10,000 feet into the ocean and I found out interestingly enough that um, 
he was in the research vessel with a uh, a machine he had designed for studying sound waves at different depths of the ocean. And I thought, wow, that is really a strange coincidence that I was interested in deep ocean sound. And here, that's what he had been studying in 1957. Um, and then I eventually met Dr. Tierney Tees, who became our lead advisor, and Dr. Sylvia Earle, and he, Dr. Healy Hamilton, and a whole host of these amazing oceanographers and marine biologists who fed our process. And in a sense, just by sharing what they know, it felt like the show was writing itself, and we just had to follow through. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> How quickly did you realize that? the ocean's in a dire state and how much of that comes through in the show I think I think Dr. Tierney Tees really brought that home for us because she's very passionate about ocean health and and it's hard to talk to any any ocean researcher without eventually touching on the topic of challenges that the ocean is facing right now and we made an intentional decision to structure the show to draw the audience into the ocean to show to remind them of how wonderful the ocean is, the vitality, the excitement, the textures, the interactions, and then at the end share with them what is threatening that, all of that life. And and I think what we've ended up with is a, a performance experience which takes the audience on a journey and leaves them in a place where they really care and they really want to help and they want to be a part of the fixing rather than the furthering uh, of the damage. So the performance starts with a bit of, well, there's some abstract tones and themes that the viewer can absorb, and then at the end, a, a little bit more concrete information is shared? Yeah, I, you know, although we're using abstract structures, the narrative is more expressive than abstract. So the audience knows, okay, that's a seahorse duet, and they know that that's a, an octopus exploring an object. But we do have some heavier reality that um, comes in near the end. And then it ends on a hopeful note because the people working in the ocean science, especially, you know, Sylvia Earle is such an amazing ambassador for, for what we can still do. We leave people with the, okay, this is how we're going to work together and rebuild our resources and discontinue some of our harmful behaviors. How are you? How is the audience receiving all this? We've been having a really great response. Audiences love the show in general, and and we've had a lot of people coming up to us afterwards saying, "I'm really excited. I really want to help. I really want to get involved." So we added to our program ten simple things that you can do for the ocean because so many of our audiences really wanted that. So I feel like it's it's working. That's so cool. <laughs> it's locally right now. People can see this in the next few months here in the Bay Area. Tell us where people can see it and how they can get tickets. So people can see Okeanos performed at the Aquarium of the Bay. There's a great theater there called the Bay Theater. And that's on Pier 39. You can get tickets through our website, capacitor.org. That's C-A-P-A-C-I-T-O-R dot O-R-G. Or on the Aquarium website. We will be running the show through the end of the year and potentially beyond. We'll, we'll see how it goes.
Thank you so much, Jody. Mm-hmm. It's great to meet you. Thank you, Jennifer. I've been talking about the different arts that feature the ocean as part of their theme or how the ocean has influenced their art. And there's so many, so many different artists. I wish we could focus on it all year long. And it's just a wonderful way for us to access information and the aesthetics of the ocean, helping to build our our stewardship of it and to engage more people in appreciating the ocean and understanding its role in our lives. So definitely check out some of these artists, the Banana Slug String Band, Jim Toomey, uh, Capacitor, this dance performance in San Francisco right now, Okeanos, the exhibits at the Oakland Museum of California, all the aquariums and all. There's so many different art shows that have the um, the ocean as part of their themes. So thanks for tuning in today to listen to that. I just have uh, one announcement here to share with you, especially for those of us who use the coast here in Point Reyes and on the outskirts. There is a, a epidemic. Not, I'm not sure if it's an epidemic right now, but it's an issue going on on the coast um, called sea star wasting syndrome. And there are sea stars that are appearing with lesions and decay around the tissues around the lesions. And eventually this leads to the fragmentation of the body of these sea stars and and death. And there's a little bit of research happening up and down the coast trying to understand the the extent of this. And so far it's showing itself all the way from Alaska all the way through to Southern California. And typically, it's from a bacterium, which we're familiar with here in Tomales Bay, called Vibrio, because of the impact that has on the oyster growers. But at this point, they're not entirely sure if it's associated with this uh, bacterium or not. And so there's research happening up and down the coast trying to document it. And I thought for if anybody's out on the coast and notices this, you might want to document your observations. There's a website you can go to through UC Santa Cruz the Pacific Rocky Intertidal Monitoring Program, and they are um, taking in data for people who are documenting it. And all the information is on the website. And I'm going to give you the website right now, PacificRockyIntertidal.org. Um, you can go to that website for some background information on this and also how to track and document any observations that you have. If you're out in Tomales Bay and out on the rocky shores and noticing this, you might want to mention it, or out on the beaches of Point Reyes, get online and check it out. I, I haven't heard of any reports here in Point Reyes. I also haven't been talking to too many people about it. So this is fairly new information in the last month, the sea star wasting syndrome. So we'll see what this is all about and bring you some more information in the future about it. We have been focusing on the arts today, and I really appreciate you tuning in and supporting us during the pledge drive here at KWMR. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and this is part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1, you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus, and Ocean Currents has a podcast. You can go to iTunes and search for Ocean Currents there, or go to Cordell Bank. .noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I really love to hear from the listeners. If you have a chance to send me an email, um, I love hearing feedback about the program. Any questions or great stories you want to share, potential people to interview, please do send me an email at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov, and I'll do what I can to get it on the next program. Uh, my next program in December will be about seaweed harvesting. So that'll be a really interesting program. I hope you'll tune in then. Until then, take care. Celebration with
Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.